as we're here in the 15th chapter, as you can see, we're, we're looking at now the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to come back to this chapter one more time. We're going to look at uh, something a little more specifically next time. But today, I want to focus in really just on uh, the crucifixion itself. And so I want to, to look at the crucifixion from the standpoint of um, what it has uh, what it what it was about and what, what it accomplished for us and the application and so forth. But before we do that, I want to just highlight a couple of things in the passage that we read together here, uh, at least a portion of the passage. And so in verse 16, we're told that, and re- so remember, previously we were talking about um, Jesus is before Pilate, uh, he offers the people the choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And, and so, of course, they, they choose Barabbas versus Jesus. So then Jesus was led uh, away by the soldiers into the praetorium. So the praetorium is would be the governor's residence in Jerusalem. Now, um, this whole scene that we read about here where they twisted a crown of thorns, they put this purple cloak on him, uh, they struck him. They spit upon him. All of this um, was was something that the soldiers they they would treat prisoners like this. I mean, this was fairly normal procedure. Uh, but of course, the the Jews and the Romans um, hated each other. And uh, as far as the Jews were concerned, the Romans were just you know these oppressors. They were heathens. They uh, had no right to be there in God's land. And the Romans who had conquered the world and conquered Judea, uh, they just, you know, to them, the Jews were nothing but scum, basically. And now here's a person who uh, there's this claim that he's the king of the Jews. So they are going to go out of their way to humiliate um, Jesus uh, because of that that title that was given to him, uh, the king of the Jews, of course, which he actually was. But one of the things that it says that they did to him is it says that they made a crown of thorns and they put it upon his head. Now, the thing that we need to understand is, you know, the whole Bible is all woven together. It's so amazing when you think about this phenomenon, because the Bible as some of you know, the Bible is made up of 66 books, but it's really one book. And you find this, this thread that is sewn all the way through on so many different issues. But think for me, or think with me for just a moment about this whole idea of a crown of thorns. Because the first place that thorns are ever mentioned in the Bible is all the way back at the very beginning of time, and it's connected to the fall of mankind. So remember, God creates humanity, creates man, uh, male and female, he creates them, Adam and Eve, and they're in a, a relationship with God, and the world is a paradise. Everything is beautiful. There's no such thing as thorns, thistles, nothing like that exists. But when the fall takes place and man disconnects from God through that rebellion, then what happens is that impacts all of nature. And so the first place we read about thorns and thistles is in Genesis chapter 3. 
And it's part of the curse that comes upon the world because of this rebellion. And God says to Adam, the earth will now produce thorns and thistles. Now, fast forward to Jesus. It's no coincidence that they placed a crown of thorns on his head. Because you see, again, it's tying the whole thing together. Thorns are uh, a sign of the fall and the curse that came as a result of that fall. Jesus is here to bear the penalty of the curse. And so when they placed these Roman soldiers, of course, had no idea that that's what they were doing, but that's exactly what they were doing. They were identifying Jesus as the one who would bear the curse. And, and of course, that's exactly what he did. And so that's one thing that I wanted you to see here. But, but secondly, I just want you to see that what's happening here as well is all a fulfillment of the prophetic scripture. And we'll look at that as we jump into just focusing on the crucifixion. Uh, but there's several references right here in Mark's account that take us back to the Old Testament and tie the two things together. Now, you know um, that there's there are four Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So each one of them, um, we're not going to take the time today to fill in all of the blanks. Mark gives probably the most brief account of the crucifixion um, out, of, out of the other three. And so there, there are things that Matthew will tell us that we don't have here. There, there are interesting things that Luke tells us that we don't have here. And then, of course, John tells us things that we don't have here. But we're just going to stick right with the, the text as it is here in Mark. If you want to get some of those other details, then I would encourage you to go ahead on your own and read through the other accounts, because there are some very interesting other details that are there. But what I want to focus on today is just this whole um, this picture of Christ crucified, the crucifixion of Christ. And I want to set um, the stage here by reminding us that all of these events were determined before time ever began. Think about that. We're told about Jesus later in various places in the Gospels that he is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So before God ever creates the world, before he ever creates humanity, all of this has been determined because, of course, God knows he's going to create and he knows the outcome of what's going to happen with his creation. He's going to create this, this creature, man, and he's going to create man for a relationship with himself, but there's going to be a revolt against that, but God is going to um, reverse that, and he's going to reverse that um, by coming into the world and redeeming mankind. So in eternity past, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made the decision to save sinners by sending God the Son to pay the penalty for their sins and uh, by dying in their place. That's where I want us to start. He also chose the means by which he would die. He chose death by crucifixion. Now, this is so interesting if you think about it. So this is, God determines that all of this is going to happen, that he's going to die for sinners, God the Son. 
but he also determines the method by which he's going to die. Now, in um, Israel at the time, the, the death penalty was usually uh, carried out through stoning. That was the common way of executing people in Israel. It was through stoning them. The Romans had a number of ways that they could execute somebody. Um, the, the most uh, civilized way, believe it or not, was by beheading. And the reason that was the most civilized way is because it was the swiftest way for someone to die. It was, in one sense, the most painless way. It was, in a sense, uh, uh, a method by which there was very little suffering. Crucifixion, on the other hand, was a completely different situation. And crucifixion was reserved for Rome's, um, for their greatest enemies, and, and it was, it served as a reminder to anybody who would revolt against the nation that this would be your destiny. Now, crucifixion was designed to be a slow, agonizing, utterly humiliating death. That was the, that was what it was all about. It wasn't kill them quickly. It was make them suffer as long as we possibly can and display them before others so that anybody who might have the the slightest uh, inclination to revolt would see somebody crucified and say, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. So that was, that was the intention. But Jesus chooses to be crucified. So why did he do that? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. But I want us to see five things concerning crucifixion. So if you take notes, you want to Jot these down. We're going to look at five things uh, concerning the death of Christ. And the first thing is that it was a predicted death. It was a predicted death. And here in the passage, we see in verse 23, um, it says this. It says, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. And then it says they divided his garments, casting lots for them. And then a little further down in verse 27, it says, with him, they also crucified two criminals, one on his right hand, the other on his left. Now, this was predicted. It was predicted in the 22nd Psalm. If you this afternoon read the 22nd Psalm, you're going to see there in the 22nd Psalm that um, the psalmist, who's David, he's going to say they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So David speaks prophetically 1,000 years before the event, and he describes what's happening at the foot of the cross. But then it also says in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And so the gospel writer points out that Jesus was crucified uh, between these two criminals. So you see, this was a predicted death. It was something that God foretold in advance that would take place. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it was a voluntary death. The the death of Jesus was not something that was forced on him. You know, some people today have the strange idea that um, even though Christians for 2,000 years have believed that, that Jesus died uh, to, to bear the punishment for our sin, some Christians today think, oh, that isn't true. That, that's a misreading of the Bible. 
And they say, because if that was the case, God would be like a cosmic child abuser, forcing his, uh, his child, his son Jesus, to, to be punished for sin. But we have to understand that Jesus died voluntarily. It, it wasn't forced on him. He wasn't made to do this against his will. Jesus even said himself, he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And then he said, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. So anyone who thinks that they're doing God some service by trying to get him off the hook of being a cosmic child abuser, don't even bother because he's not one in the first place. Uh, this was agreed between the father and the son. It's like, I love my wife. She's so good with her um, imagination. She comes up with some really great pictures and things like that. Uh, but, she, but she had this picture of, you know, like, um, like a great king and the, um, the subjects of the kingdom have been taken captive and the king's son is going to go on the mission on behalf of his father to deliver them from that captivity. Well, that's the picture. That, that's, that's the right picture. Jesus comes voluntarily to do this. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are the one God uh, working in unison to bring about our redemption. It was a voluntary death. Thirdly, it was a substitutionary death. And substitutionary means that he died in our place. In other words, we should have died. We should have died for the um, offenses that we had committed against God. But Jesus dies as our substitute. He dies in our place. Again, Isaiah 53 tells us that. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So his death was substitutionary. And we believe that. And we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's what we're talking about. Uh, Jesus said in John 6, 51, he said, I give my flesh for the life of the world. That's what he's doing. He's paying the penalty with his flesh for the offenses that we have committed. Fourthly, it is a reconciling death. Through the death of Jesus, mankind is reconciled to God. To be reconciled means to come back together. Uh, two parties that have been separated are now brought back together. Second Corinthians 5, Paul the Apostle says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And then in Colossians chapter 1, he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. So it's a reconciling death. That's what happened. Through the death of Jesus, God brings humanity back into a relationship with him. And the final, the fifth and the final uh, thing here is that it was a universal death. It was a universal death, meaning that the death of Jesus was for everybody. There wasn't a single person that was excluded from this. 
So we read about this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It's a universal death. Now, not all Christians believe that. Some Christians believe that Christ only died for uh, the elect. He died for some people, but not for all people. I, I think the Bible uh, teaches that he, his death was universal. There's no one that was excluded from that sacrifice that Christ made. So now let's look at each one of those things again, but let's see how they um, apply to us. What, what does this mean? So in that the death of Christ was a predicted death, what does that mean? Well, it means that we could know that this was according to God's plan. This wasn't something that just happened. Sometimes I, I will talk to people. I've heard people say things like this. They, they don't understand that Jesus came in fulfillment of God's promises. Some people think that Jesus just kind of showed up in history, just like you showed up in history, or I showed up in history, or George Washington showed up in history, or, you know, whoever else. And then uh, people just decided, wow, this must be the Son of God. Oh, that's not how it happened. Jesus came into the world um, in fulfillment of promises that were made centuries earlier predictions. We call them prophecies. And he comes to fulfill that plan of God all the way back to the very beginning that we talked about a moment ago. It was at the very beginning when sin entered into the world that God said, I'm going to send a, a redeemer. And he spoke that to the serpent who deceived the woman. And he said, I'm going to, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So all the way back then, there was this promise given, and then it unfolded as time went on. So we know that the death of Christ was according to God's predetermined plan. When we think of the death of Christ as being voluntary, that demonstrates his love for us. He willingly laid down his life. Jesus didn't have to do this. He could have simply just said, no, this is not going to happen. God could have decided, having created mankind and, and humanity revolting against him, God could have just simply said, okay, we're finished. That was a bad experiment, and uh, we'll just end it right here. But he didn't do that. He came, and as we pointed out, he came voluntarily, but, it, but it's the voluntary aspect that shows us he did it out of love because he didn't have to do it. But he volunteered to do it. And Jesus himself would say at one point to his disciples, he would say, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's exactly what he did. He laid down his life voluntarily. Um, his substitutionary atonement, it pays the penalty for our offenses against God. Now, this is super unpopular today, the idea that we've offended God, but... Um, whether it's unpopular or not doesn't really matter. It's true. We, mankind has offended God. We have lived in revolt against his uh, rule over our lives. And that, that has brought us to a place of guilt before God. 
And that guilt must be punished. So there's a penalty for that. Just like in our experience in life, you know, if you decide to go out and commit a bunch of crimes, there's going to be a consequence to that. You're going to have to pay the penalty for those crimes, depending on what the crimes are. You're going to end up in jail, or you might end up in prison, or you could even end up um, with the death penalty. That's something we all know is a reality in this world. Well, it transfers beyond this world. It's not just here. And the whole concept of justice and righteousness and all of that is connected back to the God who gave his commandments. And so it was for those offenses against God that Jesus died and thus paid the price, the penalty. And fourthly, his reconciling death, it restores the fellowship we were created to enjoy. Human beings were created to live in a relationship with God. And everybody knows this experientially. Not not everybody understands what it is. But everybody knows that there's just something about life that seems incomplete. Or there's something about life that just seems like, you know, something always goes wrong. There's, you know, you just think like it's, it's the perfect situation and then everything sort of goes south. And this happens over and over and over again. It happens to civilizations. It happens to communities. It happens to families. It happens to people. It's just the way it is. There's always something that wrecks it. There's the spoiler. There's like a built-in spoiler to everything. There's a reason for that. It's because of our disconnect from God. We were created to live in a relationship with God. Now, the reconciling death of Jesus restores that. So when that's restored, we suddenly discover like, oh my goodness, life is about something completely different than I thought it was. It's about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with him. And that spoiling agent that is there in life is one day going to be completely removed. That's It's sin is what it is. But that will be completely removed. Um, but the sin that separates human beings from God, that's been dealt with, and so the reconciliation has take, taken place. And then finally, with the universal death of Christ, it just reminds us that salvation is possible for everyone. As we read there in that Hebrew passage, that he tasted death for everyone. There's not a single person that's ever lived that is not a candidate to have eternal life. Remember John 3.16, that famous passage, for God so loved the world. Who's the world? Everybody. It's the, the entirety of the population. And so Jesus made salvation possible for everyone. And so this is is the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. But we could also say that Christ's death was 
an agonizing and a shameful death. And I want to talk about that for a moment. It was an agonizing and a shameful death. I already described how the Romans adopted crucifixion. The Assyrians invented it uh, centuries before, but the Romans, uh, when they came along, they said, that's a great uh, tool to to keep people under control. So they adopted it and actually perfected it as a means of torture. But you could argue that crucifixion is the most painful and shameful form of execution ever devised by man. It's, like I said earlier, it's, it's very... Uh, purpose is to cause as much pain and agony for as prolonged a period of time as possible. Crucifixion wants to keep you alive as long as, as it can so you can suffer most intensely. But it's also the most shameful way of dying. It is utterly shameful. And this is something we don't think too much about. But, you know, and, and think about Jesus for a moment. Um, people who were crucified were crucified naked, totally naked. We always see the pictures of Jesus with a loincloth. That's fine. But the reality is there was no loincloth because the purpose was humiliation, utter and complete humiliation, to completely shame the person. Now, here's the question that I want to address, and I started with it in the beginning. But since that's the case with crucifixion, why would Jesus, why would that be the, I mean, if he has the choice, which of course he does, because this is all part of God's plan to redeem, nobody said you have to be crucified. Why, why was it crucifixion that he chose? Now, just one other quick word on crucifixion. The Roman statesman Cicero, uh, this is what he said about crucifixion. Listen, he said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. Uh, to flog him is an abomination. To kill him is like an act of murder. To crucify him, what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. So horrible a deed is to crucify a Roman citizen. The very word cross ought to be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. So Cicero says Romans should never be subject to even hearing about crucifixion or seeing it. That's how, how, how horrific it is. But not only was Jesus subjected to it, but he willingly subjected himself to it. Why is that? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. Perhaps there are more, but I'm going to give us two reasons here today. Um, The first is this. Jesus' death on the cross displayed most clearly God's abhorrence of sin. and the punishment that sin merits. See, we think lightly of sin, and I think more so today than probably ever in in our society, there is very little serious thinking about sin. It is dismissed as just absolutely 
no, there's no such thing. Uh, it's ridiculed, the idea that there's sin. It's mocked. Uh, sin is flaunted today. Things that people in previous generations were ashamed of and, and generally did under the veil of darkness, uh, you know, today it's just right out in the midday sun. So, so the attitude um, towards sin in the culture today is one of just a complete dismissal of the whole idea. But God has not dismissed the idea. And, and we need to understand that. I've just been reading through the law of Moses just as I go through my Bible reading. And, um, I'll tell you, man, especially when you, once you get like halfway through Exodus and you get into the building of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and all that, it's like you just realize that you, uh, that sin is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's like everything the Israelites, everything that surrounds them is sin. And, of course, God provides atonement for sin, but he makes very clear that there, you know, it's almost like breathing is sin. And the point is, what God is seeking to drive home is that we are sinners, and we dwell in the midst of sin, and sin separates us from him, and there has to be an atonement made for us to reconnect with him. That's really the message of the Mosaic system. That's what it's telling us. Now, Jesus will become the fulfillment of all of those things. But the point that I want to make here is that God takes sin very, very seriously. He takes it as seriously today as he did uh, back at the time of Moses. And the, the way we know how serious a matter sin is to God is through the cross. Because the Son of God had to die on that cross to pay the penalty for sin. So we don't like to talk about sin, and we certainly don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, but we need to wake up because the reality is we are sinners. And Unless Jesus pays for that sin, and of course he did pay for it on the cross, but unless we appropriate that ourselves to our own lives, then we are still bearing our own sin, and we have to bear the consequences of that sin. But the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus bore the penalty. But that's what's happening on the cross. So the death of Jesus on the cross was the most vivid display in all of history of the wrath of a holy God against sin. Now, there's many examples in history where God punishes sin. We can go back in the Bible. We can see the flood. Is a, we can begin there. Uh, after, shortly after the time of the flood, you have um, the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, and then you have the judgment upon Egypt, and all, all the way along, you can see these times where God intervenes and he judges sin. But the greatest display of his judgment of sin was on Calvary when Jesus was there upon that cross, dying that brutal death as a sacrifice for sin. The cross testifies to the offensiveness of sin to a holy God. So if we're ever tempted to think that God's okay with sin, let's just remember the cross, because that tells us, no, God is not okay with sin. He... um, allowed his own son to be 
nailed to a cross so our sins could be forgiven. The second reason, and I, and this one to me is, is so powerful. In the cross, Jesus was identifying to the fullest extent with a suffering humanity. Now, again, remember, Jesus has the option. He can determine. He's going to die for the sin of the world. He can determine how he's going to die. Maybe he would choose to die by the sword, by be, be, being beheaded. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real death. Blood is shed, but it's swift. It happens in the blink of an eye, and it's over. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. Why? Because he is determined to fully identify with man. Do you remember in the Gospels, maybe you remember when Jesus was baptized, um, he comes to John the Baptist, and, he, and he's there to be baptized, and John says, what are you doing? I, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, permit it to be so, for we must fulfill all righteousness. Uh, people have wondered, what did that even mean? Well, you see, here's what it meant. Jesus was not a sinner, but in being baptized, what was he doing? He was identifying with sinners. He was taking the place among sinners. And so with the cross, Jesus is identifying to the fullest extent with a suffering humanity. Now, I don't have to give a big lecture on um, the fact that, that mankind has suffered uh, throughout most of history. There are these rare occasions, and we actually have been allowed to live in this time, this season, where although we, of course, all of us suffer in various ways, our suffering has been minimal compared to most people throughout most of history. And even while we've enjoyed relative peace, so I was born after the Second World War, um, and that sounds like so long ago. Um, the baby boom generation is what they call it. And, you know, from the time of the Second World War to basically today, there's been uh, an unprecedented amount of, of prosperity and peace and, and relative peace, you know, in the United States especially. I'm speaking more specifically about the U.S. here. But, you know, throughout most of my lifetime, I mean, I had to register for the draft when I was uh, a teenager because of the Vietnam War, but that ended the year I graduated from high school. And we've had a few things here and there, but relatively speaking, life has been good. But while we have been enjoying life here in our little part of the world, all kinds of people have lived under the most horrific conditions and suffered immensely for a variety of different reasons. And that's still happening right now. So even though we might not be experiencing those levels of suffering, know this, that this is, generally speaking, this experience of mankind. So disease, disaster, injustice, cruelty, torture, heartbreak, death. I mean, this is the, this is the long tale of human history. It's a tale of suffering and woe. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus in his love chose to experience the full impact of what sin had done to the human race. 
So Jesus is going to identify fully. There's not a single person that could ever say, regardless of the depth of suffering that you have experienced, there's no one that could say, well, Jesus doesn't understand. Oh, he understands. He died by crucifixion, by his own choice. He drank the bitter cup. He had that, that unimaginable experience. Why? To identify with his suffering people, with his suffering creation. And this, to me, is, is so powerful because today, of course, people are always, you know, we live in the day where blasphemy is uh, second nature for so many people. Everybody's accusing God. We have a whole industry of, they used to be called the new atheists. They're kind of getting old now. But, um, but you know, their whole job is to blaspheme God publicly. That's what they do. And if God was a God of love, then he, how could he ever do this? And, you know, they got all of these things they come up with and all these accusations they make against God. But, you know, the fact of the matter is God didn't stand aloof from human suffering. He put himself right in the middle of it. And I love to just remind people of that. See, my God is not a detached God. He's not a God that can't relate. He's not a God who just said, well, you guys suffered too bad. No, he's a God who said, I'm going to suffer with you. And through that suffering, I'm actually going to redeem you. The cross testifies to the immeasurable compassion of the Son of God for suffering sinners. A man named John Stott, I've quoted him many times over the years, uh, he was a great evangelical leader in Britain, um, was a preacher and so forth, traveled the world. He wrote this, and I've shared it before, but I want to share it again because it's so powerful. Um, he, he traveled much through the Asian countries, but he wrote this. He said, I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding with thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. He suffered as one of us. How powerful. That's the truth. So the cross reminds us of many things. But ultimately, it reminds us of the great love that God has for us. For God so loved the world that he gave. When, when Jesus said that he gave, that he's talking about the cross, that he gave his one and only son. Now, at the end of the, the portion of scripture that we were reading, not at the end, but somewhere in the middle there, remember, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, they mocked him. The religious leaders mocked him, and they said this. They said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. 
And then they said, if you're really the son of God, come down from that cross and then we'll believe. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But the truth of the matter is, had he saved himself, he could not have saved anyone else. You see, he could have come down from the cross. He could have said, okay, we're done. I suffered enough. We're finished here. But he didn't do that. What kept Jesus hanging on that cross was not the Romans around him. It wasn't even the weakness in his own body. It was the love of God for us that kept him there. Because by not saving his life, he saved us. And that's the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the gospel. And as we close today, I I just want to say that, you know, this is the greatest news there ever could be. It's the greatest offer there ever could be. It's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened. But we can be so oblivious to it. We, We can just not even realize it. And yet the moment we, we realize, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and we call out to Christ. Man, he comes, and everything changes at that moment. Jesus changed the world, and he changed the world one person at a time. And he can change your world by changing you. And he changes you by reconciling you to God, forgiving your sin, taking away that barrier that was there, and bringing you into a relationship with God And it all comes through just a a genuine uh, desire for that to take place. Now, how easy is it to, to be saved? It's as easy as whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But of course, the calling on the name of the Lord is a calling in sincerity. The recognition, I need you, Lord, to save me. I'm separated from God. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm, I'm guilty. Now, you might have a hard time imagining how sinful you are. I think we all have a hard time with that. Just take God's word for it. And you don't even have to go the depths of how sinful you are. Just you know that you are a sinner. You know that you don't even live up to your own standard most of the time, let alone the standard that God has set. And that puts us all of sin and comes short of the glory of God. But God's grace brings us the gospel to save us from the penalty and the power of sin and to give us life. So, Lord, we thank you that that is the gospel, that that is the reality of, of what was accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross when he was crucified for us. Oh, Lord, how we thank you that salvation is is a real thing, and it's here, and it's available for us today in the end of 2019. Lord, you're still saving people. You're taking them out of uh, the misery of sin. And Lord, you dove headfirst into sin in order to do that. You came and you paid the penalty. And how we thank you, Lord, help us to receive all that you have for us, all that you've provided through your death and resurrection. Help us to embrace it all. We thank you for it. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together. Um, Sorry, we went a little bit long today.
but you know, we're celebrating, and uh, we can we can go a little longer. Um, as we as we wrap up this morning, though, you know, I just want to appeal to anyone that's with us today. If you haven't received the salvation that Jesus came to purchase, what are you waiting for? This is the time. You know, there's a place in the Bible where it says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable time. Don't harden your heart. Don't wait any longer. God has a, has a life for you that he wants you to live. He wants you to enter into. And, and remember also that while you stand at a distance from Christ, you stand under your own sin. You're bearing that sin uh, yourself. And if you remain there, you will then have to bear it forever. And nobody wants to do that. Nobody who really knows what that entails would ever in their right mind want to do that. But it's, it's so easily resolved by just coming and saying, Lord, forgive my sin. Because remember, this whole thing we just read about today, just remember that that was for you. Jesus died on that cross for you. Whoever you are, he died for you. He was hanging there because of your sin and because of my sin. And so God calls us to embrace his son and receive the forgiveness, but to receive the life that comes with it. So we'll have some folks up front this morning and they're available to pray with you. They're available to answer questions if you need questions answered. But uh, please take advantage of this opportunity and come on up and, and open your heart and receive the Lord. If you need prayer for anything else, our prayer team is up front again and over in the fellowship hall. And uh, they'd love to pray with you. And uh, prayer tonight at 630 in the fellowship hall this Wednesday night. Uh, we have our midweek study. We're still in the fellowship hall. We're going to kind of hang out there as long as the weather permits. Uh, once it starts raining, we can't be there anymore because there's too many people. But uh, we'll be there this Wednesday night, and this Wednesday night is communion. So we're going to be sharing in the bread and the cup together. We're going to have a nice night of praying, prophetic prayer together. So hopefully you can join us for that. God bless you. Praise the Father. Praise the Together, the praise the Father.
Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday. God bless you. See you next week.